Welcome to Radio B&R, a podcast production of the Baptist and Reflector, the official news journal of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. Radio B&R, keeping Tennessee Baptists informed about the issues impacting their lives and churches. Hello and welcome into this edition of Radio BNR. I'm your host, Chris Turner, Director of Communications for the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. And today, my two guests are William Maxwell, our Administration Director here at the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, and then also Vicki Holsey, who is Childhood Ministry Specialist. Uh, been, both of them have been working in Tennessee for quite some time. Uh, our issue that we want to talk about today and just really cover is here recently in this week when we're recording this, there has been the series of articles that have reached, released in the Houston Chronicle uh, related to sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And we've had churches that have uh, contacted us and then also just through social media and, and comments that have been made. There is a, 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 an asking for help in what churches need to do, and that's what we really want to focus on. So, William and, and Vicki, I appreciate y'all being a part of this today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, let's just jump into this. Um, this is not the first time this week that, that this has been an issue. This is something that, obviously, churches have dealt with for a long time and that the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board has been helping with for a long time. Vicki, just talk a little bit from your experience about what you have helped churches with related to uh, the the protection of minors in churches. Well, one of the biggest things is trying to help churches understand the importance of background screening and why that needs to be done. Often when I'm talking to churches about that and recommending that, the response I get back is usually, that won't happen here or our church is too small everybody already knows everybody and so we'll know if a stranger comes in but as I go and continue to talk with them and share some statistics with them they're often shocked when they hear statistics that reveal that most children or minors are not abused by a stranger but by somebody they know and trust and that goes even deeper than looking at the physical and emotional trauma that can happen from that because when we look at that word trust from infancy children are learning to trust their parents they're learning to trust teachers that they can see and hear before they learn to trust a god that they can't see or hear so that ability to trust is really really important as a spiritual milestone and we need to pay attention to that because while the physical and emotional and mental impact of abuse can be devastating, we also have to look at the possibility of the spiritual impact that can result when that trust has been shattered. And that kind of an experience could be the very thing that stands in the way of a child accepting Christ as Savior. Yeah, I think one thing that you mentioned there that we definitely don't want to just blow past, but people really need to hear, is that vast majority of instances when there has been some sort of of abuse uh, with with a minor that it is not from some outside predator that has kind of crept into the flock, that this is coming from someone that they have a trust relationship with, whether that is a family member or uh, someone else in the church or from a minister of some kind. That really is the frontline area where where the risk is. Is that correct? 
yes i mean they you know these children are taught they can trust these people in their lives but also they they believe that they see that and they trust those people because they feel like they're in a safe place so william you've been working a long time as well with churches and just from a church admin and church policy you've also done training for churches when we talk about uh, doing a background screening, that, that that can mean a lot. But when, as you advise churches, what are some things that you advise them about related to background screenings? Well, the first thing is to make sure that you're using a reputable uh, firm to do those screenings. Make sure that they are checking the National uh, Sex Offender uh, Registry. They're checking uh, national criminal databases, but also state criminal databases. Uh, and it should also include multiple states. Uh, you should uh, get the address from the, the whoever you're screening as to where they've lived for at least the last five to ten years and then check all of those states. When, when a church, you know, says, ah, you know, is the screening really, really that significant or does it help, how would you respond to that? The likelihood of actually screening someone and them showing up as a, as a predator is very low, quite honestly. However, the mere fact that you are conducting the screening and the potential predators know you are conducting the screening means they're probably going to move on. One of the reasons churches um, have been hit with a lot of these predators is our school systems, the Boy Scouts, a lot of other youth organizations where predators uh, like to hang out have, have gotten ahead of us on the screening process. So they have migrated to churches because mm-hmm. they knew that uh, it was an easier field. So, Vicki, when you are working with a church in this area, I mean, is this something that, that they often bring up, or is this something that you're proactive in asking them about what type of policies and procedures they have in place? Many times, if it's in a standard situation where we're doing trainings, say Sunday school training, VBS, that kind of thing, then that is something that I will bring up. But many times it is a church that may have unfortunately had an incident happen, and so now they're trying to figure out how to deal with that. Or it could be a situation like what we're dealing with now when it's in the news media, my calls – frequency goes way up because they start getting afraid so i even find if i do training during those times the numbers attending training go up because they realize hey this really could happen to us yeah it's one of those things that you know kind of out of sight out of mind and and if it's right. not hitting the news then you know people aren't as front burner concern then when it when it has hit like it has this week then people really awareness. Of course, that is a is a great opportunity to help them understand the importance of that. Uh, William, you know, we when we talk about Vicky had mentioned that a lot of times they find out afterwards, um, or they're contacting her afterwards. When when a situation like this happens, what obligation does a church have? Maybe a minister in the church, or an adult, or someone in the church. When, when a situation happens and there is an initial contact that uh, this has happened, what obligation does a church have legally to, uh, to deal with that situation? 
Tennessee's law is very specific and very clear. It says that anyone, minister, teacher, Sunday school leader, uh, softball coach, anyone that has reason to suspect that a child has been abused, is is being abused, or quite frankly is is not uh, being cared for properly, has a legal responsibility to report that to the proper authorities. Uh, that could be to the local sheriff, it could be to the police department, or it could be to the Department of Children's Services uh, in Tennessee. And uh, But that is a legal requirement. It's a it's a misdemeanor uh, to fail to do that. Yeah, Vicki, you, know, you have seen and heard of situations where, you know, that there is a delay in that or church staff needs to know what's going on or whatever, that kind of thing. But but it sounds like what William is saying is that, that yes, the church staff does need to know, but the authorities need to know. How do you advise uh uh, church staffs and pastors and others to really really recognize the need there well I, th- I think one to to understand that 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 reporting needs to happen immediately and it needs to happen by the person that suspects that something has happened or maybe they've seen something they are obligated to report so you don't want to delay that that process by going to your pastor or some other staff member first and thinking that they can do that reporting for you. Sometimes people would rather somebody else do that, but as William said, that any person is responsible to report. Yeah, and you know, a lot of times people don't have the ch- the choice of whether they're going to be put in that position or not. It they they if they're the one that that's reported to, they don't have the option to pass that along. It's their responsibility. Is that correct? Right. You can't, you can't pass that off to somebody else. If you want to to or if you want to go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I just witnessed this or I suspect this, and then go with him to the phone and make the call together, that's fine. But you can't pass the buck. Yeah. You know, last year I I dealt with a church and just trying to help them understand what what to do in a particular situation. There actually was not an accusation made; it was more an insinuation by a mother that something might might have happened. And I told uh, the person at the church, "You need to contact the authorities. You need to be proactive. And if it proves to be nothing, then it's nothing. But uh, if if it does turn into a full blown accusation," Uh, then then you've got problems because you knew about it for a while before you did it. And so the next morning they called DCS and reported. Now, fortunately, this church had great policies in place, had all of their staff trained up. And so when DCS came out and looked at it, almost immediately uh, looking at the situation, they, they said there's nothing here and there's nothing to this claim. And, and the parents actually never fully did the claim but DCS commended them for being proactive to do it. So we've got a list of 12 things a church can do to protect minors, and this will actually be on uh, the Babson Reflector website related to the story on this. So be looking for that PDF. That's something definitely that we'll make available. But uh, you know, on this list, there are some things 
that are, are just just must-haves, first of all, is to even have a policy in place. Why, why do churches need to basically codify what it is that their policy related to minors is? Well, as you as you explained with that church situation, it's it's a mediating factor. If you do have a situation, uh, you have a lot better legal defense if you say we have a policy, we have a plan, and even if an employee or a volunteer violated your policy, the church is it has a better protection. Um, but uh, you, you know, I think some churches don't want to tread this way because they're fearful of, oh, that's going to be long and involved and require a lot of money and a lot of investment. There, there are two things here that I would say would probably reduce the risk of sexual abuse happening in your church by 50%, and they don't cost anything. Uh, those are the two-adult rule and the six-month rule. The two-adult rule says that you never uh, allow one adult to be alone yeah. with children or minors uh, at any time, anywhere, that that just never happens. And this particular church that I mentioned has that rule, and DCS saw that that rule was being fully abided by, so that was a big help for them. Yeah. The the other rule is the six-month rule, which is where you don't allow anyone to work with minors in your church until they've been a member Mm -hmm. of your church for six months. Uh, This protects you from those predators that are – uh, coming to your church just to find easy praise, uh, they'll move on because they know you take child care very seriously. Uh, and the and the other things you do, will just having the policies in place will prevent people uh, from, from uh, moving in that direction. Uh, and, and, for example, the two-adult rule is also a protection for those adults yes, yes. because false accusations do occur. Uh, this protects if there's two adults in the room all the time uh, and they can't be related, don't need to be related, can't right. be husband and wife and don't need to be related at all, uh, Those uh, uh, the, the adults can testify as to what actually happened uh, when that group was together. Uh, you don't ever want isolated uh, adults and minors together. Yeah, so Vicki, uh, as you've talked with churches and have been in churches, uh, that that you've seen that have these policies in place, um, how how have you helped them understand the the security or the confidence that gives parents when they come into a, a church? Maybe they're visiting and they see that the church takes that seriously and has that. Uh, how how does that impact that church's ministry to its community? Well, it can be a huge impact one way or another. You know, one of the things that surprises leaders many times is that visiting parents when they're coming to a church in years past they often would want to know what kind of programs do you offer for my kids Mm. but now the big concern is right the first visit is what policies do you have in place how do you screen adults that work with preschoolers and children and if that question is no then they won't even put them in a class. Yeah. And so that that has become a big deal. I even knew of a church situation that after there was uh, some news media around a particular situation, that they that parent, it was a large church, and she had four children. She went to every area where kids could go in, and she asked them the question, 
if the pastor of this church came and tried to pick up my child, would you let him? Yeah. Because she wanted to see what they were going to say. Yeah, and I, you know, I think one of the things that you both are, are you know, getting at is it's one thing to have policies. It's another thing for people that are in the child care program or, you know, the church body as a whole to be familiar with that. Uh, just talk a little bit about, Vicki, how important it is for the church not only to have a policy but to provide the training for the workers uh, and then also just you know just general awareness for the church. It, obviously not everybody in the church is dealing with minors, but why is it important for everybody in the church to understand that there is a child care policy? It's extremely important, and the policies are only as effective as the way that you follow them. In other yeah. words, it does no good if you have them in writing, but you don't enforce them. And so one thing that I, you know, I really strongly encourage people to have limited, churches to have limited access as to who can enter an area that's designated for preschoolers and children. So that's something you do have to make sure your entire congregation is aware of so that they don't get upset when you don't allow them to walk down this hallway. Yeah. Um, because that limits that access. When you have a policy in place about who can pick up children, which the very best is the person that drops them off is the person that picks them up. But if if they have to, for some reason, let, say, if a mother brings the child but the dad's going to pick up the child, then whatever she's given at that point, if they've given a, a tag or... T- a number of some kind, then she would have to give that to the father for him to be able to pick up the child instead of her. So there yeah. has to be something in place. And you can't ever break that. You know, they may say, oh, I left it in the pew. Well, then they have to go back to the pew and get it. And that upsets some people. But it's worth that to keep something happening because you never know when there might be a divorce situation going on in a family and you may not know all of the custody arrangements, there could easily be something that you don't know. It would seem like in a larger church that that would there would be less trouble with someone enforcing that than in a smaller church where, as you mentioned, everybody knows everybody. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, she forgot to give me the, the tag, but I'll go ahead and pick them up, and them going ahead and giving, that, um, giving the child to a father or mother, you know, the opposite. So there really is a diligence that has to be like if this is the policy, even if it's a small church, people just need to to abide by the policy. Exactly. The it other, only takes one time for something to happen. Yeah. The other thing is, as you know, it does take an educational process for the church, and you create a culture of child safety, and what that does is really heightens everybody's awareness if something is not right if they see somebody with a child because they have talked about the church has talked about child protection and those kinds of things those people become sensitive to hey that just doesn't look right right and and you can actually protect a child uh, because of that you know in in a crisis situation crisis managers will talk about when they go back and look at at a crisis most crises just don't like blow up. I mean, there's you know an immediate crisis like an earthquake or you know something like that. 
most crises, somebody saw something along the way that didn't look right, and they they they're like, oh, that's probably just such and such. And so, even though they had that concern, they they didn't act upon it. And then, like in an active shooter situation, or even something like this, something if something doesn't look out of place, somebody needs to talk to somebody and get the story. And if it's all good, then it's all good. Nobody's going to be offended by the fact that somebody was being cautious and looking out for people's children. That's not going to offend somebody. What the problem is is if they knew something and didn't say it, and then there's a problem, then that person obviously is going to you know, have, be guilty or feel guilty for, for not having acted on that instinct. So, As it, William said about the educational process, that is so, so important because if you've got a church that maybe there's been – a lady that's been in the baby's Sunday school class for 40 years, and you suddenly mail a letter to her with an application and that she's got a sign to have a background check done, then she doesn't understand that, you know, why do you not trust me? And so we we have to make sure we educate the church on why this is important. I just can't think that anybody in any church, unless it was a predator, would be offended by a church taking a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or just communicating clearly, this is where we're headed and this is why we're doing it. Uh, It seems like that would be something that the church would have. Members in the church would feel a sense of confidence in their church for, for being proactive that way. Chris, that has been probably the number one reason churches have told me, we, we know we need to do background screenings, but we are so uh, we know that the, our current people are going to be offended by asking them to do this. My response to that is, uh, I would go to them and and sit down and say, "Look, we know you love children. You have worked with children here, you know, for years and years and years. We know you love them, you care for them, and you will do anything to protect them. We want you to be the 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 lead on." standing up in front of the congregation and saying, I'm going to be background screened yeah. because I love these children. Yeah. And and if you kind of approach it that way, you can take a lot of the other folks who maybe haven't worked as long as that uh, star uh, nursery worker, uh, and they have no no recourse to yeah. that. And, you know, as you say that, I mean, doing the legwork before mm-hmm. the big rollout uh, and, and kind of really getting those folks on board, especially those that have been faithful and committed workers, uh, goes a long way towards – plus, you know, there is a benefit to them in doing it. There is that, that protection that they have been screened and they're cleared. And if there is an accusation of some kind, well, then then you have the background screening in your back pocket for that person. Exactly. So, so – well, there are some other things on this list, and we'll just talk about one or two more. Uh, you know, the training for volunteers and staff who work with minors, we've, we've touched on that. Um, you know, the supervision of volunteers, uh, the you know communication policy. This would include parents approving of any electronic communication between volunteers and staff. And so, you know, that that's also uh, falls in that keeping that line of communication opening uh, open. But um, talk about the importance, uh, one, of, one of you, talk about the importance of engaging parents in this conversation. It's not just about the workers. Um, what do churches need to do in, in relation to 
going beyond just getting the the workers and volunteers and staff uh, up to speed on this. What do they need to do with parents? I have a term I use called equalizing expectations, uh, that you want parents to understand what they can expect from your uh, church ministry, whether that be preschoolers, children, or youth. Obviously, it becomes a little more complicated with youth. Uh, parents, Some parents want the churches to raise their youth on their behalf. Yeah. But so part of equalizing expectations is, is uh, coming to a more realistic expectation of that. Uh, but if you look at a lot of the cases uh, of the abuse, especially of teenagers, it begins with uh, text messaging uh, and private conversations mm-hmm. uh, that uh, the predator is having with these teenagers. So having the parents understanding that, yes, I, I'll give my permission for this person to communicate electronically, that puts them on notice, though, that they probably need to every once in a while check their kids' text messages or, or phone messages just to make sure there's no um, – uh, inappropriate communications going on. Uh, unfortunately, text messaging and the like uh, allows for that isolation to occur. That mm-hmm. is why we have the two adult rule. Uh, you can't you can't enforce that uh, with a, with a text messaging system. Uh, and I think you know staff um, need to learn how to appropriately communicate. Uh, with their teenagers i mean it's great text messaging is great to say okay we're having pizza at six o'clock tonight everybody come Um, but it's when it gets into the more personal uh and and intimate conversations that the red flags start to go up yeah vicky you got anything to add to that aspect well one thing i really encourage um leaders of kids and some people say well kids would never have cell phones well it's amazing how many children do have cell phones and have access to whether it be email or texting those kind of things and so i really strongly encourage leaders that if there is any communication like that that the parent is always included if you're going to if if a child has email a preteen has email if you email them the parent is copied on the email um that I just think that gives you that extra keeping the parent in the loop, and that also alerts the child that that's happening. You know, it really sounds like this, the whole idea that that people that deal with children or minors need to recognize that the onus of responsibility is on them to be so above board and so far from the line the, the whole idea of, you know, the appearance of evil type thing. They may be completely innocent and and there be nothing there, but that they need to be self-aware of what it might look like to someone else. And I, I think if, if people were a little bit more aware of what it looks like that they're doing, um, then, then they would have that margin between where the line is and really where they're dealing with uh, um, minors. Um, so, you know, we've talked a lot about this. Uh, we've got some resources that are on the Babson Reflector site. Obviously, um, Vicki, you've said that uh, your phone kind of blows up during this time when some attention is brought to a situation like this. What what can a church do in relation to having you help them? What, what do they need to do to, 
to say, hey, we'd like for you to, to come out and help us out? Well, many times they want to see something in writing. So this 12 things a church can do to protect minors is huge for them yeah. because they want something in writing to be able to use in their church. Um, sometimes they want you to come to their church and, you know, will you meet with this team or will you will you speak? I've even spoken to entire congregations on a Wednesday night, that kind of thing, about these issues. Yeah. Um, associations sometimes have me come and do training. But we're in a situation like now when the calls are very heavy, then sometimes it may be months out before I could do that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the calendar gets full. So that we really have to look at things like this that help as well to give them things that we can do over the phone and, and through the website and those kind of things so that they don't wait until we can get there. William, you had mentioned the screenings and the agreement that the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board has with a company that, that will help with that. What what does a church need to do if they don't currently do that but would like some help from the uh, TBMB to, to pursue that avenue? H- how would they go about that? They can contact the uh, Office of Human Resources for the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. Uh, Sheila Darden is our Human Resources Manager, and and she can provide that that connection. It's a very simple connection, uh, and and you basically can call Clearstar, and they will set you up with your own church account. It doesn't come through us. We don't see those background screenings. The connection is really just that because we do so many of these for all of our volunteers and employees and summer employees and summer missionaries and all those others that we do at such a volume, uh, Clearstar gives the same volume discount uh, to our churches, yeah, and, and, and we appreciate that. Uh, there And there are a lot of good screening services out there. That's just the one that we have found uh, fits our needs best. Uh, the system works to where that you input whoever's being screened. You put that information and their email into uh, the system. The system sends that person uh, an email, and they have to approve the screening they put in all their own information, so it's a fairly simple system to, to function. And then the church gets the report back and uh, and then makes the decision. Well, one thing we need to make sure that you know people understand is that these types of resources to have you know Vicky or, or Donna Blades or another uh, Bruce um, Edwards or Jay Barbier, one of our, our ministry specialists to deal with minors to come out and help them out or to even participate in the screening. Those resources don't cost anything to a church because of the cooperative program. Them Absolutely. giving through the cooperative program uh, enables us, enables the church to to have a partner in ministry through us to be able to help them uh, get get from where they are to where they need to be with this issue and several other issues. So I uh, really hope churches take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, there's so much more that could be said on this topic, obviously, with, with it being in the news, but but honestly, anytime, you know, when we look at the vast, vast number of volunteers that, I mean, literally thousands, that help with children every week and there's no incidents, we certainly don't want to diminish the contribution that, that they make. Uh, we also know that even a single instance where a minor has been sexually abused or really anyone has been abused in, in a church is unacceptable, and, and that's what we're talking about here is, is doing our due diligence to help each other 
be effective in making the church a place where where people can come and hear the good news and, and grow in the Lord. So um, if uh, you know if anyone has any questions, feel free to contact us here at the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. Uh, William and Vicky, thank you so much for contributing this. I know we could go on, but uh, this is probably a good place for us to wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to Radio B&R, a podcast production of The Baptist and Reflector, the official news journal of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. This and other episodes can be downloaded at baptistandreflector.org forward slash radio BR. The ministries of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board are supported through the cooperative program and gifts received through the golden offering for Tennessee missions. For more information, visit tnbaptist.org.